Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening, and thank you for your company. Remember, ADH is free to watch. Just go to the Apple App Store on your television, iPhone or iPad, or the Google Play Store, and just the, there it is all there, you can see it. Search ADH. You can watch me live Monday to Thursday at 8pm, or if you miss an episode, any episode, no trouble, just go onto the app and all the episodes are available for playback. So again, search ADH on the App Store or Google Play Store and tell your friends and family that that's where they can find me for free. Later, I'll be joined by Pauline Hanson. Thank God she was re-elected to the parliament. The One Nation leader won the sixth Senate spot in Queensland. And despite all the media reports, which are totally fake in their analysis of this, there were many reasons why it came down to the wire. One of them being that in this election in Queensland, there were many, many big personalities running for the Senate. You had Clive Palmer, Campbell Newman, Bob Catter's Australia pa Australian party. But Pauline Hanson is in... And thank goodness for that. She's got thousands of loyal supporters out there because she's a politician who doesn't sell out her country, unlike others in the parliament. Once confirmed, Pauline said her top priorities for the next six years will be tax dodging multinationals, family law, immigration and the energy crisis. Spot on. All good causes. I'm sure when she comes on, she'll have something to say about that intellectually bankrupt Adam Bant refusing to stand before the Australian flag at a press conference. I can't believe there are Wallies out there who vote for this lot. This is a party which is ashamed of our country. It's far worse than Adam Bant, by the way, but stay with me, I'll explain that to you. A party which is ashamed of our country and who we are as a people. Their policies, or should I say thought bubbles, are reckless. All they seem to do is think up crackpot ways of spending your money with special focus, of course, on solar farms and wind turbines. Yet even on the subject of wind turbines, you see they split. Why? Well, when the blades spin around, they knock off bird life. And as their messianic former leader Bob Brown once complained, they're eyesores. That's right, the so-called father of the Australian Greens was campaigning in 2019 to stop a $1.6 billion wind farm development on Robins Island in Bass Strait. Eyesores, he bellowed. 
These Greens live in a parallel universe while the rest of us work non-stop to pay our bills and taxes. Tell me what you think about this lot, actually. I think I already know, but email me anyway. Alan Jones at ADH.TV. Look, before we get underway, may I give a ringing endorsement and congratulations to a Sydney magistrate, Michael Barco. He had an Eastern Suburbs advertising executive before him in court yesterday who'd pleaded guilty to cocaine possession. And the magistrate said to this 37-year-old, quote, why do people like you have to have that little extra boost? Why can't you go to the pub and just have a drink? Unquote. The magistrate said that people like this bloke who chose to buy or chooses to buy and take cocaine were one of the factors behind the continuation of the police war on drugs and the escalating gang wars in Sydney's West. The magistrate said, it is because of well-educated people like you who continue to take cocaine, unquote. Now, the bloke wasn't convicted, but given a 14-month conditional release. He can think himself lucky. Parents are worried that people like this bloke are roping their kids into the drug scourge. Well, the magistrate's observations, I wonder will they make any difference? I'm not sure jail is the answer, by the way. They just learn there how to do crime better. Conditional bail's okay, but what about a $250,000 fine, minimum? That might start to steady these people up. Well, someone who needs to be steadied up is Adam Bant, the Greens leader, if you use the word leader very loosely. As you know, at a press conference on Monday, Bant refused to stand in front of the national emblem, the Australian flag. This was on the same day that hearings in the Royal Commission into veteran suicide resumed in Townsville, investigating the suicide of men and women who fought under the Australian flag. On that very same day, Bant dishonoured and disowned the very same flag. Prime Minister Albanese, to his credit, condemned Bant's behaviour, saying that every parliamentarian should be proud to stand in front of the national flag and urge this ego-driven political irrelevance, Adam Bant, to, quote, reconsider his position and work to promote unity and reconciliation, unquote. The Indigenous Noongar activist, Indigenous, Hannah McGlade, was apparently in law school with Bant. She made the point that Bant had never shown an interest in Aboriginal issues, and quote, never spoke once about our fight for justice, unquote, and quote, doesn't have any track record on Aboriginal rights, unquote. Yet here's Bant saying of the Australian flag, for many Australians, this flag represents dispossession and the lingering pains of colonisation, unquote. Hannah McGlade said such comments reflect, quote, a symbolism which is rejected by Aboriginal people, unquote. I might add at this point that I cannot imagine a majority of voters in New South Wales supporting an Aboriginal flag being hoisted on the Harbour Bridge every day of the year in a way which gives it equivalence with the national flag. Now, of course, the $25 million is an outrage in itself, but unless we promote one nation, one national flag, then the unity Anthony Albanese said he was seeking on the 91 the election will be completely elusive. However, it is worse than that, much worse. One of Bant's people, the Victorian Green Senator Lydia Thorpe, an Indigenous woman, is another who won't stand in front of the national flag. She's on over 200,000 a year, which she could never earn anywhere outside the parliament. 
Bant, by the way, gets a leader's allowance, which jacks his salary up to $315,000. Bugger me. But Senator Thorpe has described the national flag as an obscenity, arguing the flag didn't represent her or her people, whomever they are. It had connotations, she said, of invasion and dispossession. And she argued in relation to being elected to the Senate, quote, I'm there to infiltrate the colonial project, unquote. And she wants to question the, quote, illegitimate occupation. And for people to know, quote, whose land they're on. And the first people, quote, never ceded sovereignty. Warren Mundine, to whom I spoke the other night, said he was flabbergasted by Senator Thorpe's comments and asked, so is she there to blow up the place? Our first Indigenous Cabinet Minister, Ken Wyatt from WA, didn't miss Bant or Thorpe when he said, quote, the Australian flag has the Southern Cross on it. And the Southern Cross story in many Aboriginal cultures is significant and it's it is an important symbol. Mr Wyatt said, highlighting the ignorance of Bant and Thorpe, quote, in Aboriginal astronomy, it is a very sacred set of stars, unquote. Well, Jacinta Price nailed it when she said that Banton Thorpe had, quote, nothing but contempt for Australian people. That Senator Thorpe, quote, doesn't see herself as an Australian. She doesn't see herself as being represented by the Australian flag. And she was not the right person, said Jacinta, to represent the Australian people. Well, good on Jacinta Price for taking it one step further. She wants the Governor-General David Hurley to look closely at Senator Thorpe's intentions, quote, and consider whether this is possible grounds for dismissal, unquote. An editorial in the Australian newspaper puts the situation perfectly when it concludes by saying, some have dismissed Mr Bant's antics as a stunt, but that misses the point. His disrespectful action and Senator Thorpe's comments attack the essence of our nation. Coming from elected MPs, they are intolerable. All parties should condemn them now and at the next election, unquote. Well, in particular, could the 1.8 million Australians who voted for this un-Australian lot be heard in their condemnation? That'll be a start. Let me say this. Sedition was previously defined under the Criminal Code as, quote, conduct that tends towards rebellion against the established order, unquote. It used to include, quote, subversion of the Constitution or incitement towards discontent with the established authority, unquote. Well, in 2011, under Julia Gillard's administration, the sedition clauses were repealed and replaced with the definition which described sedition as urging violence. It might be time to reinstate the definition of sedition as conduct which incites discontent to established authority conduct with the potential to lead to rebellion against the established order. One thing is certain, Bant and Thorpe should not be allowed to get away with this behaviour. As a nation, my view is this, we're far too soft on these transgressions. Well, to the relief of many, Pauline Hanson has been re-elected for a second consecutive six-year term after a mammoth battle in Queensland. I should say at the outset that one very good Senate candidate in Queensland was not elected, Amanda Stoker. She is a fair dinkum Liberal in a Liberal Party that went to the election on May 21 with not too many fair dinkum Liberals. But Pauline Hanson's success
in being re-elected is very significant because there were a host of high-profile people contesting that spot, good people, amongst them people like Campbell Newman. That explains a swing against One Nation in Queensland on the Senate vote of 2.87%. But nationally, there was a swing to One Nation of almost 2%, three quarters of a million Australians. Why Pauline Hanson's voice is important is simple. Whether you agree with her or not, you know she's articulating her views. There are no overpaid bureaucrats putting words in her mouth. In the week when her re-election was confirmed, significant issues emerged. And that's why I thought we'd speak to her tonight. So Pauline, thank you for being with us. Congratulations. And I must ask you first, your views, since you have sat in the parliament with this person, Lydia Thorpe, who is now saying that she <coughs> believes she's been elected to the Senate, quote, to infiltrate the colonial project. Pauline, your thoughts? She's um, a disruptive person. She doesn't represent all Australians. She doesn't want to. She's quite happy to sit in the system that was be, you know, being put in place by the colonialists. So why is she actually having a go at us? You know, when many Australians voted for her, let's just be equal, treat everyone the same. Like I said, I think she's a nasty piece of work. I have no time for her. Um, and here they're hypocrites, Alan. They really are. They're taking money from a system that they are supposedly opposing. If she feels that strongly about it, she doesn't recognise the white Australians in this nation or anyone else other than the Aboriginals. But the Aboriginals owning 32% in native title of this land. You know what I say? Give it to them. You go into government on there. You separate from the rest of the strands. You provide for yourselves. No more handouts, no more whatever. And you go and deal with it yourself and just let the rest of us get on with our life in peace. Good on you. Good on you, Pauline. That's why we need you. She wants to, just going back to this Lydia Thorpe, she wants to question, quote, the illegitimate occupation of this country and for people to know, quote, whose land they're on and that the first people, quote, never ceded sovereignty. I just want to ask you again plainly, Pauline, Senator Hanson, should such a person be sitting in the national parliament? I totally disagree with it because that's not what our forefathers believed in when they drafted that constitution in the late 1800s, that it should have people on the floor of parliament trying to represent the whole, all of Australians. Um, what she purports is not equal to the rest of the as I've said before, Ellen. Um, I think she is divisive. Talking about sovereignty, they haven't handed it over. You know, for everything that she's gained and sitting in the Qantas lounges and flying on the planes and everything, that came about because of the English background and other Australians have migrated here, not from the Aboriginal community. I'm sorry to say that, but that's the truth. And yet she wants to actually divide this nation and say, because you're white, we're not going to represent you. You don't deserve representation, but we'll take your pay packet and all the privileges that goes with it. Mm. If, as Jacinda Price rightly says, this woman doesn't see herself as an Australian and doesn't see herself as being represented by the Australian flag, is she the right person to be representing Australian people? Lydia Thorpe, um, I don't believe that she should be representing the Australian people. If she doesn't represent or acknowledge or respect the Australian flag, what is she doing in the Parliament of Australia? 
and why people keep voting for her. I am so happy to see Jacinta Price enter the parliament. I, I really like her ideas, her thoughts. We're very much on the same page. And Jacinta has acknowledged that she's quite looking forward to working with me. So with Jacinta and I, you know, we're not going to let Lydia Thorpe get a lot get away with the load of rubbish that she has in the past because no one wants to actually challenge her. Pauline, before Julie Gillard's government changed the definition of sedition, I mean, this is a very serious point, this, in 2011, sedition was defined under the criminal code as, quote, conduct that tends towards rebellion against the established order or subversion of the constitution or incitement to discontent with established authority. Now, Julie Gillard's government changed the definition, replacing all of that with, quote, urging violence. Don't we need to reinstate the definition of sedition as conduct which incites discontent with established authority or conduct with the potential to lead to rebellion against the established order? I mean, and if we don't do that, but what? We need a new definition, don't we? I couldn't agree with you more, Alan, and that's what we need to do. These Greens, the people that are voted in under the Greens, have their own agenda, and it's not for the majority of Australians. It's about to divide this nation. I feel that we are in for Rocky Road for the next three years till the next election. Um, people have voted for Labor, controlled by the Greens Parliament, and if they don't have the numbers, they will get Jackie Lambie, who 80% of the time votes with the Labor and the Greens. We are going to see so much strife this nation. You're going to see that there is going to be power shortages, outages. Your cost of living is going to increase. You know, where is the money going to come from? I can see taxes being increased as well. I think the people um, need to realise um, who they voted in and uh, rethink this. Ellen, the problem is that the kids are being brainwashed in the educational system. They're coming through with this green agenda on their minds. They're saving the world and therefore will vote green. Um, I hope they don't get together and want to lower, lower the voting age, which the Greens do, to 16 years of age. That's another thing people need to consider. Pauline, just you made a very valid point there. I mean, to the bulk of Australians, someone waltzes up and says, you know, I'm Senator Thorpe and I'm from Victoria. And they say, oh, you're, you're very important, a senator. That's wonderful. And look, could I come and speak to your school? Oh, Senator, that'd be lovely. So when this Senator Thorpe enters a classroom invited to address children, is she going to fill their heads with this kind of stuff? Because she did say that she came into the Senate to, quote, infiltrate the colonial project. And she wants to question the, quote, illegitimate occupation of our country. And for people to know, quote, whose land they are on. Is she going to be telling young people wherever she addresses them this kind of message? I wouldn't be surprised if she does, Ellen, um, because she's actually tried to do it on the floor of Parliament with her vindictive, nasty words that she has put across on the floor of Parliament. She's made it quite clear how she feels about the Parliament, how she feels about the white Australians. And uh, it's funny, her father is, is white. Um, and I've met him. He's a member of the One Nation Party. Isn't it funny? These people, you know, they're of two cultures. Her mother's Aboriginal, her father's white from an English background. Isn't it funny? Why can they only side with one part of their culture? Why do people actually don't acknowledge both sides of their culture mm. and, and without putting us down and having to go up? 
Well, Everyone else who's trying well, I to suppose, make... Well, I, I suppose she takes a cue from the leader. I mean, Adam Bant wants to ditch the Australian flag. He won't conduct a press conference with the Australian flag behind him, but he wants the Aboriginal flag. But I noticed that the Indigenous Australian, Hannah McGlade, who was apparently in law school with Bant, has said that Bant, quote, never spoke once about our fight for justice, doesn't have any track record on Aboriginal rights. Will you move a motion in the Senate condemning both Bant and Thorpe? And do you believe the majority of the Senate would support you? Um, I haven't considered that, but it's a, it's a good thought, Alan. I will consider it. But I'll tell you what, you know what? It won't get the support in the Senate. The Libs and the National Party are so gutless. I'm sorry to say this, they really are. And they won't want to cause... And I'll tell you nothing that's going to happen. They'll want to put the Aboriginal flag on the floor of Parliament. And once they do that, Alan, I will not acknowledge it. And every morning we have to stand to acknowledge the um, traditional owners of the land and welcome to country. You know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm fed up with it. I'm sick of hearing it on the Qantas flights. That was brought in by Ernie Dingo. It's not part of their culture. And more and more, it's encroaching on our rights. Um, I, I don't um, believe in giving acknowledgement to anyone past, present or future. People have to earn that respect, not that you may just say it or stand up to respect it. So I just feel that we've been taken over slowly with their own ideology, their own... Um, it's it's pushing their own values onto us and we're just bowing to it. And I saw that with the Liberals and the National Party. I agree. You fall into line. Just before you go, just on energy, and we'll get a chance to discuss some of these as we get closer to the Parliament resuming, but how can we go on pretending that renewable energy will satisfy our energy needs? I mean, some of your parliamentary colleagues want 100% renewables by 2030, when on given days, 80% of our energy needs come from fossil fuels. And you made a very valid point. You said, quote, we have a new government seemingly all too ready and willing to sacrifice the Australian economy and countless Australian jobs on the altar of climate change. What can you do? Alan, I'm going to question them over the northwest shelf and the gas that we have over there. I've been saying this for the last five years. The Libs completely ignored me. And Canavan, as resource minister, did nothing about it. We have retention leases that these multinationals have owned for over 30 years. We export $54 billion worth of gas a year. We only get $300 million in taxes, yet we are the largest exporter of LNG in the world. And yet Qatar, who's the second largest, pulls in $26 billion in revenue from their export of gas. I'm, I mentioned it to Albanese when I rang and spoke to him on last Sunday night, and I congratulated him on his win. I put them on notice. I'm going to put up my dairy bill um, back on the floor of Parliament to give the farmers a fair farm grade price for their milk. I'm going to attack about the gas off the northwest shelf and multinationals paying their fair share of tax. The gas, and I looked at it today, not the gas, I should say, but when we looked at the resources today, where we got our energy from, in Queensland and New South Wales, it mainly came from coal. There was very little wind and solar that Correct. we did. That's right. Most of it That's right. from coal. Well, People need to look at this online where the live power is coming from yep. and wake up to yourself. You've been fed a bloody furphy here that you are going to be living in the dark. Your, your bills are going to skyrocket because you put people in power in this country and who are going to shut you down, destroy industries and manufacturing. But, you know, Alan, people have to hurt a bit.
They haven't been hurting. They think they want to play, save the planet. But until they start hurting in the hip pocket and the impact it's going to have on their lives, the cost of living, then they might wake up to themselves, take an interest in politics and vote for people who are truly going to represent Good them, not this, this green ideology that's been forced down our throats. Good stuff. You're in top form, Senator Hanson, top form. And when you start, when you put that legislation, put that bill through to the Senate, uh, we'll talk to you again and we'll keep at it. You must as well. Congratulations again, Pauline. Marvellous stuff. There she is, Senator Hanson. How many Senator Hansons do we need in this country? Look, I've spoken recently on several occasions, actually, about the Governor of the Reserve Bank, Dr Philip Lowe, perhaps Australia's most expensive protected species. He's on over a million dollars a year and has at his disposal 1,342 full-time equivalent employees, but he can't get it right and he gets away with it. I repeat what I've been saying. Given that we don't know where inflation is going, we don't know where interest rates are going, the protected species, low, and his 1,342 staff can't tell us. But he could tell us last November, quote, it's still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. He could still tell us last November, quote, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in the next year, and that is this year, or in early 2023. Yet here he is now telling us that, quote, it's unclear at the moment how far interest rates will need to go up. This is policy failure of enormous proportions. The crisis with inflation and interest rates is a direct consequence of failed monetary policy by an expensive and bloated reserve bank. How business makes responsible decisions in this environment, I do not know. I mentioned the intervention last Friday of the former talented Federal Treasurer Peter Costello when he said of the Reserve Bank, quote, the bank completely missed the surge in inflation, heightening the risk of recession with its worst monetary policy failure in three decades, unquote. Peter Costello, Peter Costello also said, re-inflation, quote, the RBA completely missed the takeoff point in the March quarter, unquote. Now, we need to remember that the role of the central bank is to secure the stability of the financial system. That stability has now been squandered by telling us with all this damaged authority last November, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024, which leads him now, obviously terrified of getting it wrong again, to say, oh, it's unclear at the moment how far interest rates will need to go up. Well, Peter Costello described Lowe and his Reserve Bank as, quote, the worst failure in monetary policy since the 1990s. And he said the consequences are that the RBA now has to raise interest rates faster and further than otherwise would be the case, unquote. If this is not a catastrophic failure by Lowe and the Reserve Bank, what is? Well, today, the former AMP chief executive, Andrew Mole, has backed Peter Costello's assessment that the Reserve Bank, quote, completely missed the surge in inflation in the RBA's worst monetary policy in three decades, Peter Costello's description. Andrew Mole is also critical of the RBA's policy in 2020 to pin the three-year government bond to the cash rate. The yield target contributed to, he said, protection against downside economic risk by lowering the funding costs for lenders. But Andrew Mole likened the yield curve control 
as practiced by the RBA, to the operations of a private hedge fund, said Andrew Mole. In reality, no private sector player would do this, as the risk and capital requirements would be off the charts, unquote. I repeat what I've said before. The new Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is to order an independent review of the Reserve Bank, the first since the 1980s. In the light of these recent failures, it can't come soon enough. And given that Prime Minister Albanese has axed in the last 24 hours several departmental heads, then why not bring the guillotine down on the failed Governor of the Reserve Bank? It's also worth noting this. Not only is Dr Lowe on over a million dollars a year, with 1,342 full-time equivalent staff, and they can't get it right, why should we believe anything he's telling us now? Yet the response to inflation and the interest rate settings are critical to every Australian and every Australian business. This bloke low should not be determining our destiny. Just a point of further interest. Not only is low on over a million dollars, these new departmental heads in Canberra are on salaries only a few cents short of $900,000. Yet on issues of defence, national security, tax, education, you go on forever, they universally preside over failure. Now, we all fail from time to time, but we're entitled to not expect that failure to be funded so extravagantly by the taxpayer. Well, the quite brilliant young man you hear every week on this program, Daniel Wilde, is, as you know, the Director of Research at the Institute of Public Affairs. He's fluent and factual. You won't find that amongst too many politicians. Last weekend, he wrote that the power supply crisis confronting us was not an accident. And he wrote, and I quote, these are the blackouts Australia didn't need to have. The crisis has been caused by deliberate policy choices made by low voltage politicians on both sides of politics, cheered on by corporate and media elites for more than a decade. He went on, and I quote, on the first day of winter this year, the Australian energy market operator, the government body in charge of our energy system, made the extraordinary admission that Soviet-style gas rationing would need to be introduced, unquote. Soviet-style indeed. The bureaucrats have taken over electricity supply from the market. And as Daniel said to me last week, this is only the beginning, unquote. Now, if that's not bad enough, the IPA have released today a major report on the consequences of what we've been talking about, this obsession with net zero. Get your head around this, because the IPA is thorough in its research. It's concluded that if you want net zero, you're going to have to accept that the wholesale electricity price will quadruple. But here's the rub. The typical Australian family's electricity bill will increase annually by at least $1,600. Now, we need to remember always that the new government, which is advocating this net zero, and I might add, supported from the other side, but the new government was only supported on May 21 by three out of 10 Australians. And the IPA have done comprehensive research where 72% of respondents indicated that affordability and reliability should be the focus of energy policy. Only 28% 
had as a primary concern meeting net zero emissions. Daniel Wild joins me again. Daniel, thank you so much for your time and your research. It is immensely disturbing, isn't it, that people like Keane in New South Wales, Andrews in Victoria, Bowen in Canberra, purport to speak for the majority of Australians. They don't. No, they don't, Alan. And since we've last talked, things have only gotten worse. We've seen Australian families told to turn off their heaters, uh, not to turn their dishwashers on until 3am. We've had aluminium smelters told that they can't operate because our energy grid uh, can't handle it. Um, as I say, this is just the beginning. We're only three weeks into winter. Uh, we've got uh, a lot more to come. As we've identified in that research that you mentioned, uh, Alan, under net zero, at least six large coal-fired power stations are going to close by the year 2030, taking a further 20% of energy generation off our already struggling energy grid. And the effect of that is going to double uh, family electricity bills, quadruple business uh, electricity bills. In the 21st century Australia, it's astonishing that Australian families are being told you're going to have to choose between heating your home or putting food on the table for your kids. Yes, just coming back to that point you made. So doubling people, individuals, families, doubling their electricity bill. Now, your research showed that 92% of Australians were willing to pay only $100 more for Australia to cut its emissions to net zero. But as you just said, Australians are going to pay infinitely more than that. Look, that's exactly right, Alan. The costs of these policies are being pushed onto working class Australians in the suburbs and regions. You know, these are mums and dads with two or three kids trying to pay their mortgage, already dealing with significant cost of living uh, challenges and the cost of their energy bills are only going to go up and up. It's not the inner city elites. It's not the wealthy elites. They're going to be fine. It's not the big business bureaucrats. It's not the public servants. It's not the political class. It's not the bankers. It's going to be working class Australians that are going to incur the cost of these policies. Now, let's have a look what's happening internationally. The UK is moving away from net zero. Boris Johnson recently said he wanted the UK to have a pause on its net zero commitments in order to shore up its domestic energy supply. The same with Germany, which was the pinup boy uh, for green energy in Europe. Now they've got among the highest electricity prices uh, in Europe. And the Greens uh, economic minister there has said that they need to reboot their coal fire power. Uh, so we've seen these major... Uh, Western nations that are moving away from net zero. They're saying enough of the wind and solar. We need to get affordable, reliable coal back on the market. And that's exactly what we need to be doing in Australia. Absolutely. And just coming back to Germany, that deputy chancellor is the leader of the Greens. He's the bloke who's saying we have to reboot coal-fired power. Look, you make this very eerie but valid point that, quote, the unattainable green dreams of the political class and inner city elites will not just result in a cold, dark night under the quilt, but the loss of sovereign defence and manufacturing capabilities. Just to amplify that point for our viewers, Daniel. Look, it's a critical point, Alan. What we've seen with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is it's exposed the vulnerability of Western Europe on Russian gas supplies. And now they've been scrambling at the last minute to find out how they're going to continue to power their economy uh, in that heightened geopolitical uh, environment. Now, in Australia, we don't yet face that fate. Australia is not yet the Germany of the Asia Pacific, but we're fast becoming that way. You know, we have the advantage of having an abundance of natural resources beneath our feet. We have over 2,000 years of coal beneath our feet. We've got an abundance of gas, an abundance of oil, a third of the world's uranium deposits. We're quite happy to send this all overseas for the benefit of other nations to use. 
but short-sighted policymakers on both sides of politics at the state and federal level are saying that we can't use our own resources to secure our domestic supply. Now, if you don't have control over your own energy supply, you cannot have a sovereign manufacturing basis. You cannot have the industrial power you need to defend your own nation. We know that about 80% of the critical rare earth minerals used in solar and wind are imported from China. So what net zero is doing, it's not only jacking up our electricity bills and taking our jobs, it's undermining our ability to have control over our own energy and making us more dependent on hostile foreign powers. And we've seen what this has done in Europe, and we must not repeat their mistakes. That's a brilliant exposition. I just, you mentioned Ukraine there. You make another very valid point, and uh, the me best metaphor of this, that Australia didn't send Ukraine 70,000 tonnes of solar panels to aid their defence effort against Russia. They sent 70,000 tonnes of affordable and reliable Australian coal to power the fight. How dumb are we? I mean, at home, we can't get advantage of this, but we're actually allowing the international world to take advantage of our resources. Well, that's exactly right. It is dumb, Alan. That's the only word you can use to describe this because, look, we're told by the political elites and the aficionados in big business and, you know, the big lobby groups of the Business Council of Australia that, look, we need to cut our emissions in order to save the climate. But when you actually look at the details, it doesn't stack up. Why does it matter whether we use our coal in Australia or whether China or India or Indonesia use the coal? The impact in terms of emissions is exactly the same. All that's happening is we're exporting our jobs, exporting our sovereignty, jacking up our bills, but for no discernible environmental benefit. And that's before we even get into the reality that Australia only counts for about 1.3 or 4% yeah. of total greenhouse gas mm. emissions. This just doesn't stack up. It's all economic and social pain for no discernible environment. Yeah, again. absolutely. And, and you see, the point to be made here too is that the world are using our coal in brand new, high efficiency, low emission, coal-fired power stations to power their countries. Why can't we build just one, just one heli, high emission, low, high efficiency, low emission coal-fired power station? Well, you're absolutely right. And we've got the coal to use it. The coal yep. is right here for us. I mean, we are truly the lucky country. We don't need to be reliant on other nations, unlike so many other countries around uh, the world do. And you're dead right about high efficiency, low emissions coal. We should be building many coal-fired power yep. stations and keeping the existing ones open for as long as possible. Now, don't forget the whole net zero is based on the fiction that renewables are cheaper than coal. Mm. It's just not true. Yes, when you have a grid that's stable, firm, what they call it in the energy game, meaning that uh, the lights go on when you flick the switch. Yes, you can put wind and solar on top of that, but you cannot get reliable baseload power from wind and solar. No advanced economy has ever done it because it cannot be achieved. You need, you need coal and you need nuclear or you can use hydro, Absolutely. but wind and solar can't get the job done. But just coming back, and I say to my viewers, this is Daniel Wilde, who's the research director at the Institute of Public Affairs. Now, they are very, very thorough and have released a research paper today. Just cover that those points again on the real costs of net this net zero nonsense, quadrupling the wholesale electricity price, more than doubling the retail electricity bills. This is what it got in front of us, and doubling the family's electricity bill. Who, apart from you and me and a couple of others, are telling Australians this? Well, it's an important point, Alan. I mean, we just have to keep going and making the argument. I thought it was immensely disappointing when Scott Morrison signed the coalition up to net zero 
at the Glasgow Climate uh, Conference last year because what it meant is there's been no debate about this. The coalition were unable to hold Labor to account for their climate policy because they had essentially adopted the same one. So they got a free kick and Australians aren't being told about the cost. But as you say, our research outlines exactly what net zero means for families and businesses in Australia. And it's not pretty. Uh, By 2030, we're going to have six coal stations closed, taking 20% of energy off our grid. Now, that's going to jack up prices by about 110% for families, about close to 400% uh, for businesses. And that's right across the country. We analysed Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania, all of the economies and states that are on the national energy market. And the pain is going to be shared right around uh, the nation. And the key point is this. And again, I come back to this because it's important. Those who are promoting the policy of net zero are not the ones that will incur its costs. It's not the well-off inner city elites. It's not your big business bureaucrats. It's not your political class. It's not your media elites. They're all fine. It's working class mainstream Australians in the suburbs and the regions that are picking up the bill for a policy they don't even want. Good on you. Marvellous stuff. Keep doing some wonderful work, Daniel. Always great to talk to you. We'll resume this next week on the principle that when you and I are getting sick of saying it, someone out there will start to hear it. So thank you for your time tonight. There he is, fluent My pleasure, and thank you. That's Daniel Wilde from the Research Director at the Institute of Public Affairs. Fluent and informed. You won't get that in Canberra. Look, just carrying on that theme with a bit more detail that we raised with Daniel on the energy front, there's little, it seems, to steady up the renewable advocates. Facts don't matter. Eminent scientists don't matter. History doesn't matter. And the recent experiences don't seem to matter. Germany is now ready to defy the European Union's ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars. That was to be by 2035. After that, nothing. Well, Germany, I mean, the aim was, of course, to go to electric cars, but of course, they never tell us where the electricity will come from. But the German finance minister is now saying that phasing out the combustion engine in Europe was the wrong decision because how common sense is this? Manufacturers elsewhere, as in China, would fill the gap. Germany are now firing up mothballed coal-fired power stations in response to Russia cutting gas exports. And the finance minister, Christian Lindner, said simply, Germany is not going to agree to a ban on combustion engines, unquote. Well, here at home, it's now being said that the lockdown of our national electricity market could be lifted tomorrow morning. Fears of blackouts have receded for now. Why? Quote, we're told today, I quote, the return of coal plants and about 4,000 megawatts of generation has returned from coal-fired power. Old King Coal saves the day again. Matt Canavan got it right on Monday night when he said to me, referring to the Chris Bowens and Matt Keynes of this world, and Matt said, quote, to me, write a letter to these morons to tell them that old coal-fired power stations are unreliable, old cars are unreliable, but if you build new things, they don't break down. Said Matt Canavan, if coal is the problem, shouldn't the lights be going out in Japan, Korea, India and Vietnam, who rely on our coal, but have invested in new coal-fired power stations, unquote. I might add that Matt Canavan has today dismantled another piece of nonsense, that the lack of a carbon price, I think they mean carbon dioxide, has caused the current energy crisis. Matt Canavan weighed in, read that fallacy, quote, Europe's had a carbon price for over a decade, Matt says, and they face an energy crisis at least as bad as ours. If carbon prices 
prevent blackouts, why are Germany, Germany, Italy, Austria and the Netherlands all rushing to reopen coal-fired plants right now? Unquote. I guess we're entitled to be confused. You've got the International Energy Agency, which is supposed to be an information source originally dedicated to responding to the physical disruptions to the supply of oil. But it too talks now about an energy transition, as if the world could ever go without coal-fired power. While across the world, over 80% of our energy comes from fossil fuels. But then here, who makes our energy decisions? There's an Australian Energy Council representing 20 major electricity and downstream natural gas businesses operating in the wholesale and retail energy markets. And it boasts that it is your voice in the industry. I don't think so. We have no voice. Then you've got the Energy Security Board, another Johnny-come-lately outfit established in 2017 to provide, quote, whole of system oversight for energy security and reliability, unquote. And you've got the Australian Energy Market Operator, in their words, shaping a better energy future for all Australians. Another new kid on the block, 2009, a budget of 250 million. Then you've got the Energy National Cabinet Reform Committee and the Energy Minister's Meeting. And they have the oversight of the Energy Security Board, the Australian Energy Market Commission, the Australian Energy Market Operator and the Australian Energy Regulator. No wonder we can't get anywhere, all of them getting in one another's way. And then you've got dopey politicians, most probably best represented by Zali Stegall, the member for Warringah, arguing today, and I quote her, Bowen, as in Chris Bowen, Bowen correctly has identified that more investment in renewables, not less, is the answer to the crisis, unquote. That, of course, is nonsense. But if it were true, her electorate contains magnificent beaches, Manly, Freshwater, Shelley Beach, to name a few, why doesn't Ms Stegall volunteer to hoist a few wind turbines there to generate her renewable energy? That beautiful precinct would look something like this. You like that? There we are. There plenty of wind all along the beach. Why not? If not, why not? Plenty of wind over the beach areas, but alas, no wind turbines, I guess. Let others suffer the unproductive eyesores. Well, last night I made reference to the splendid science scholar and former member of the House of Lords, Viscount Matt Ridley. He highlighted recently the fact that world energy demand has been growing, that's the key word, growing, at about 2% for nearly 40 years. He argued using International Energy Agency data, quote, if wind turbines were to supply all of that growth, but no more, how many would need to be built each year? The answer, 350,000. That's one and a half times as many as have been built in the world since governments started pouring consumer funds into this so-called industry in the early 2000s. His words, he went on, at a density of very roughly 50 acres per megawatt, typical of wind farms, these are his words, that many turbines would require a land area greater than the British Isles, including Ireland, every year. He said, if we kept that up for 50 years, we would have covered every square mile of a land area the size of Russia with wind farms, unquote. Now, remember, as he says, and I quote, this would be just to fulfil the new demand for energy growth, not to displace the vast existing supply of energy from fossil fuels, which currently supplies 80% of global energy needs. As Viscount really argues, Wind turbines are pretty good already, 
The problem is the wind resource itself, and we cannot change that. It's a fluctuating stream of low-density energy. He said, mankind stopped using it for mission-critical transport and mechanical power long ago, for sound reasons. Concludes Viscount Ridley about wind power, quote, it's just not very good. Plough on Chris Bowen and impoverish all of us. Well, now, before we go, look, the one thing which grinds my gears is that government almost always fails to look after our own, Australians especially. Especially Australians too, who roll up their sleeves and work hard. Then, when they grow old and may require aged care, they're left to rot in a system that's totally underfunded and understaffed, both of which sideline any remaining dignity. Nine years of a coalition government and the aged care crisis was met with no more than empty platitudes from Scott Morrison, even after a revealing Royal Commission. Another group amongst us who are hung out to dry by government are our vets. Veterans are dogged by successive governments, doesn't matter which party's in office. Each year, whenever there's an Anzac Day or a Remembrance Day or any other significant battle anniversary, politicians address the public and pretend to be the best friend of the digger. It's always the same buzzwords, isn't it? Brave men and women, heroes, fought for our freedoms. We'll never forget the sacrifices made for your country. But the moment the ceremony's over and the public depart, the veterans are forgotten. Most of their time is spent battling with bureaucrats from the Department of Veterans Affairs. I've gone into bat for many of these people and we haven't finished yet. I've addressed charities and made representations to government on their behalf. They turn to me, I think, because they get nowhere with bureaucrats and the minister is often brain dead. Well, all of this was confirmed this week in Townsville, where the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide is being conducted. The former Veterans Affairs Minister, Darren Chester, was questioned over his time in the position he held from 2018 to 2021. Chester was asked why, after receiving a report from the Productivity Commission in 2019, making several recommendations to improve the Veterans Affairs Department, including changes to legislation on the processing of veterans' compensation claims. Why did he sit on it and not act quickly? Unquote. Well, I could be of assistance there to the Commission. Simple answer, he's a dud politician. Council assisting the Commission, Peter Singleton argued, that despite receiving this report in 2019, the Coalition Government's earliest significant work to address it was in the form of a workshop, can you believe, in December 2021. Why so long? Council assisting Singleton repeatedly pointed out to Chester that the government had not made a decision in three years to accept or reject the recommendations in the report. Singleton suggested the only conclusion could be that the government failed in its duty to veterans. Well, of course, Chester disputed that claim, but then went on to defend himself by declaring that other work was being done at the time. What work? Most of it appears unfinished. Chester even admitted that there was, quote, no completed policy, no completed costings for the specific recommendations in question. And this bloke fancied himself as a potential leader of the National Party. Ego significantly in excess of ability. Well, that's it from me tonight and for this week. I'll see you next week on ADH TV. Thanks for being with us. Good night.